Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Marvin's World Podcast. A podcast where we speak to absolutely fantastic and amazing people. If you like the episode, share it with your friends. Give us a view on iTunes or Amazon. If you didn't, well, fair enough. Why not drop me an email on info at instant-laughs.com. Let me know your, your ideas. Now, today's guest is an absolutely magnificent lady. She is an absolutely hilarious comedy gem. She is a lady from Nevada who immigrated to New York and started comedy because her boyfriend said, her ex-boyfriend said, you can't do comedy. <laughs> she went and proved them wrong. And now, a few years later, she is now storming comedy gigs across the UK, or at least when they're alive <laughs> and active. She's absolutely hilarious, and this is one of the funniest episodes I've ever had. Let's talk to Catherine. Um, what would you say is sort of shaped, what is it about where you came from that shaped you into what you are today or who you are today? You know, I, it's, it's interesting, I guess, when I think about it, because when I was growing up there, I just assumed the things that were there were, you know, like everybody had, like, I guess I just assumed everybody got their haircut in a casino. Like my mom and I, we would go to the pepper mill, we park in the giant parking lot, and then we'd walk into this casino and everybody's gambling. And then we'd go to the hair salon. And then when we would leave, we'd be at the top of the escalator. And my mom who just had her hair done, you know, she didn't want all the smoke from the cigarettes from the people gambling to like get in her hair. So she'd tell me at the top of the escalator, like when we get to the bottom of the escalator, we're going to run, like run out of this casino. So the smoke doesn't get in my hair. So I guess I just assumed everybody lived like that, you know? And uh, I guess when I moved from Reno to California, where my mom grew up when I was 10, you know, California is very different than Nevada. They're very close, but it's like the attitude is different. It's more laid back. It's a little more liberal or whatever. And, you know, uh, it, I I don't know, the town we moved to also a little more closed minded, frankly. Um, But I think growing up in just sort of a weird environment where like, you know, you're around whether you want to be or not, you're around, like my mom had to explain to me what the people were doing at the slot machines in the grocery store. Cause you know, they're all colorful. So as a kid, you're, you're like, I want to go play with that. And it's like, no, you, you don't want to play with that. that. That, you know, that's for people who are, you know, gambling away their, their lives um, <laughs> or whatever, you know? So I think, that kind of started, I guess, me just being open to weirdness because it wasn't like you could be very sheltered growing up in a town like Reno, even if you did have like the mom and the dad in the house and all that. It, I don't know. It just, uh, just kind of like my, I, I, it's funny since you're asking all this, like my neighbor on the corner of my street, he had like this pond in his yard. And this is like Reno in the suburbs. And he had an aqueduct in his yard and water would spill out of it into the pond and crawdads, or I guess like you call them also crayfish, 
they would, you know, pour out of that into the pond and then we'd catch them and then we'd make videos with them. And, you know, like, like movies, right? We like Attack of the Crawdads or whatever. And that's just like a weird thing to do in a town where also you're avoiding junkies and seeing gambling. It's just a, the juxtaposition. And oddly enough, that neighbor of mine, he just followed me on Instagram. Turns out he won an Emmy for doing uh, the music on that Netflix documentary about why you, you know, social media is evil or whatever. I don't remember what it's called. So look at that. Mm. Another weirdo creative guy coming out of Reno. So that's quite an interesting thing when so this is a little what i want to get into it so you social media i mean as a com, as a comedian and like whatever sort of profession you're in you you need to pay attention to it it is a very i think social media plays a massive a part of why maybe so mental health has become such a big thing now i think like people can't get away from things like if they're getting bullied or yeah. something they get bothered they can't just go away and focus on something they're getting a message or they're getting a, getting some sort of rumors spread on them online i mean it's necessary if, if you want to grow if you want to be successful in things but yeah it does carry a lot of downsides to it as well yeah i'm i'm not like you know it's it's funny that you say that because i've gone back through my instagram to the very beginning when i first got instagram before i was ever a comedian Right. And I, all I used to post on Instagram were things I saw in the world that I thought looked cool or funny or, you know, whatever, like people in New York or like graffiti or just like, you know, I think somebody drew a dick on a window of a car in the snow after it snowed. And, you know, that made me laugh. So I was like, I'll put that on Instagram. And now of course, like, you know, doing what I'm doing, Instagram, you know, you don't have to change and conform, but it's like, yeah, like now it's about me and what I'm doing. And even though I'm a really open person, I'm kind of like, I, I don't love it. Like, frankly, I don't, I don't love it. I, at the beginning of the pandemic, when I had like all this hope for the way my year was going to go, because I had come to London for the first time things were going well over here. I was flying to Australia to do these comedy festivals and I was feeling really optimistic just based on how London was going and how the fringe had gone for me. I was like, okay, I'm really excited to be in Australia for like six weeks or whatever it was and do these festivals and see what I can make of this. And then the pandemic hit. And then suddenly I found that I had zero content to make because I'm, I found even, you know, I, I'm very, <laughs> I guess, finicky in my artistic pursuits. If I'm not feeling inspired, then I'm not going to force myself, which I'm not saying this is a good quality. I probably should sometimes, but like, I didn't have an idea for a sketch or a little video, you know, as so many people have evolved now, right. To, to do like TikTok or sketches or this or that, like, I just don't have that idea that, you know, speaks to me to create. So I'm, I struggle to want to put out something that I find just mediocre for myself. So as a result, I found I had nothing to put out. And then, you know, I, I remember I was starting to lose followers and I started feeling really bad. And then I was like, I'm an adult. This is crazy. Like, I don't even know some of these people who are unfollowing me. Like, <laughs> this shouldn't matter in my actual life, but I had to actually 
break myself of feeling bad about it. You know what I mean? And like, even now that we're in another lockdown, it happens. Like, I think 30 people have unfollowed me or some shit, you know, cause you notice, I notice it just being that I am still trying to market myself, but I feel less like shit about it. It's kind of like, all right, well, you know, it is what it is. Like, you know, unless I know you personally, then I feel, then I take it very personally. Cause I'm like, mm. I know you, you know, but but yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, um, I, I, it's a real balance of trying to use social media in a healthy way, I think. And I don't think they, whoever they is, I don't think, um, it, no, when it was created, nobody was like, here's how to do that to also protect yourself and your mind from being like in yeah. cyber reality versus actual reality or, or whatever the fuck, you know? um yeah you know you point you've brought on an interesting thing because one thing you may you probably get this a lot as well like whenever i speak to comedians at all levels or even people from outside they always say that comedians are mentally unhinged but the thing is when i look across like a lot of other industries or whatever job you're on about there's people that are mentally unhinged in there as well i think maybe perhaps um comedians maybe don't spend enough time sorting that out because we're so addicted to the laughs and we focus on that maybe we don't sort of spend enough time to think about it and like i find it funny when people say that comedians have when, when comedians themselves say that we're all mentally screwed up or whatever you're sort of perpetuating like saying that i you're you're saying what you are you're saying that i'm very odd so you're going to give excuses for your behavior but i that's one thing I find a bit iffy with comedy when people say that we're all mentally unhinged. I don't think it's really that different to any other industry. Well, I think, you know, maybe another way of looking at that is like, at least we embrace it because like, I'll put, you know, sometimes you see, I don't know, like, let's say uh, some girl who works in PR and like is on her phone all the time, making sure to document every fucking piece of food she eats because her life means nothing unless people are liking it on her story or whatever. But she's not going to be like, I'm mentally unhinged, even though she probably is too. I think, you know, comics, I guess we're willing to embrace it. But with that said, on the flip side of that, I definitely heard people be like, I'm mentally unhinged. And I'm like, you are one of the most normal motherfuckers I've ever met in my life. And you should probably not be doing comedy and find something else to do, you know, because you're not mentally unhinged. The most mentally unhinged thing about you is that, like, that's what you're connecting with. Like, if that's your identity is only that, then, you know, you probably don't have too much to say. But, you know, as you get older, you kind of start to realize you don't have to do any of that. In fact, you can do it a totally different way. And I'm sort of of the opinion now, after doing most of that that way, I was like, why didn't, why at 17 years old was I selecting the thing to go study when like really all I wanted to do was like drink beers in a park? You know, like I shouldn't have, I had no business like trying to structure my future um, at that age. And there really isn't, you don't have to do things that way at all so i find it kind of fascinating that you know i still meet a lot of people who are like oh i went to yale because my dad wanted me to go to yale to be a doctor and i'm like that's so crazy because this is your life and you can like quite literally do it any way you want as long as you know you're looking out for yourself and your health or whatever um so it, it's it's interesting to me that anything is ever sold it's like this works for everybody 
You know what I mean? One toilet paper that's perfect for my asshole might like make yours bleed. So it's like, do <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah, we're all different, like from, from the inside out, you know? So yeah. I, I, and I feel like we all know that. So I sometimes wonder why we, if we, I feel like deep down we all, all cause you know, we're all different, unique snowflakes like that gets said, but then it's like, well, we should all think and agree and do things the same way. It, it, it's it, I don't know you know it, it it's fascinating I guess people <laughs> and with that going on we all like the Terminator 2 scene where Sarah Connor goes up to the Terminator and says what's your story and I think everyone has their own sort of story and you've mentioned a lot of interesting things about moving from like Nevada to California and like how it seems like it was was there a long journey that took you into stand-up or did you just start like when you were in your teens at like Nico White and then boom? Oh, you just said Nico White. That's so funny. I know Nico uh, from New York. Um, yeah. You know, that's it. Uh, so no, so I'm, that's funny. Cause Nico, yeah, when Nico is a lot younger than I am. And no, I actually started pretty late. I would say I started when I was at the end of 27, 20, I guess right at the beginning of turning 28 pretty much is when I started doing it. So um, yeah, I guess there was a long journey to that. I never thought about doing stand-up at all. I kind of liked comedy. I'm not really a comedy fan. So what I mean by that is like, anytime I see something funny, I appreciate it. I'm like, that's funny, haha, you know? Maybe if something's on or whatever, but I don't go out of my way to watch stand-up. I never did. I think I watched like Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, and like George Carlin, and then John Mulaney. Those are like the few specials I would like randomly watch uh, before I even did comedy. So when people are like, who are your favorite comics? I like, those are the ones, um, I guess, you know? And uh, yeah, it just, the reason why I started was I, I think I was in, I had been in a string of relationships that were not the right fit for me. And I don't, it, again, it was kind of like crazy to me. I was like, why am I, well, I started learning very quickly. I'm like, I'm really not somebody's wifey, which it's funny now I literally am, but like, <laughs> um, but, but that, that's a whole other thing. Like he and I, you know, which again, it's like, so I, I was sort of trying to make a square peg fit into a round hole. And the last guy I dated before I started stand up. um, he had opened a bar while we were dating and I was basically his girlfriend. That's what it was. I, you know, oh, there's his girlfriend. And, you know, and he, I, I, I just, it was a, it was just such a shitty relationship. I, I drank all the time and he would be like, women need to have a certain decorum when drinking. And I'm somebody who pisses on the street when I drink. So, you know, obviously that was weird. Um, but uh, yeah, like two weeks before we broke up, this is just funny. I, he lived above his bar and um i went up from the bar like before closing one night and and i was like you know i'll see him like an hour when he was done closing and i fell asleep on his bed and i wasn't even that drunk but i know i had my shoes on so i guess i was drunker than i thought but not that drunk you know i don't know if you ever you know there's times when you're wasted and you're like yeah anything happened but then there's times where you're like no i wasn't that drunk but then you do the most insane shit so I guess I had fallen asleep on his bed. He came upstairs. He saw me asleep. He went in his living room to like smoke a joint. I got, and he put on some music on his record player, which was in the bedroom that I was in. 
I was just passed out. And then he hears the record start to like skip or like get fucked up and he comes in the room and I'm sitting on his old school record player. It's like in a cabinet pissing on the fucking record. Like <laughs> in, in my sleep, like he said he had to slap me awake. I remember none of this and I wasn't even that drunk. But two weeks later we broke up. So I guess you could say that was the day the music died. <laughs> you know, but I, I had said to him during the course of our relationship, I had started thinking about doing stand-up for some reason, because anytime I'd be talking to people in the bar or go to a party or whatever, people would ask me, they were like, do you do comedy or do you, are you a writer? And like, I went to school for writing. I've written zero things since graduating from college. Again, it's sort of one of the reasons why I would support not immediately going into college from being a teenager because, you know, you need to go live a little bit. But anyway, um, he was not encouraging. I just remember he was like, why would you want to do stand up? Why would you want to do that? And I was like, I don't know. Like, so I have something to do other than being your fucking girlfriend and pissing on your furniture in the middle of the night after drinking at your bar. Like I had nothing going on. I was miserable. And so when we broke up, I was just like, you know, that like female empowerment, independent person. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go do stand up because he said I, I couldn't do it. Like, you know, why would I want to do that? And I didn't like do it to get back at him, but I was like, I had the interest. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to go do this, but I had no idea how to do it. So I Googled how to do stand up comedy, <laughs> which is like fucking insane. And the first thing that came up was this class at the Comedy Cellar taught by Rick Crone in New York, right? So I was like, okay, I guess this is how you do it. So I shelled over 400 bucks. Rick is great. He's a really nice guy. But I, I started taking this class, right? So I was like, it was like a six week class. Uh, you know, I remember the first time I came in with like my piece of paper, I, I went up there to do my little whatever it was at the time. And, you know, people were laughing, but then Rick was just like, he, at the end of it, he was like, that's not stand-up comedy, like what, what you just did. He was like, uh, it's funny, you're funny, but it's, it's, he's like, maybe it would be good for the moth or whatever. And I was just, I was really disheartened. But then, you know, he like, I think he saw that I got really discouraged and he was like, look, let's sit down, let's talk about how to maybe make that like an actual joke. And Rick's very like set up punchline. I'm not that. I haven't actually become that, but it did help me recognize some things, I guess, about comedy. I still don't even know if I know how to write a joke, but that got me on my way because, you know, the class ended and I was like, well, what am I, what do I do now? Like, I can't, I'm not taking another class. I don't have the kind of money. And he was like, oh, well, you go to open mics. I wish I just would have said that on Google, right? You go to open mics. But I was like, fuck it. So I went to open mics. I had eight minutes of shitty material and I started doing it uh, like that. I quickly found that I was like one of the oldest people at the mics and everybody was very clicky and I hated it because I had already been to high school. So um, yeah. what I started doing when I got really serious about it was, you know, I did a few bringer shows, which in New York City, that's different than they are here. Like here, I was floored to see that you bring people to open mics, right? Like that's or like the, the names for stuff here. There's bringer and there's yeah. stayer, right? So in New York, a bringer show is pretty much exclusively at a comedy club. It is run by a producer who is known as a bringer producer, which is basically like 
one of the devil's minions, you know, as far as everybody's concerned, right? Because <laughs> this producer's like, bring five people and you'll get a tape and this and bring eight people and you'll get whatever. So all these people you bring, they basically pay 20 bucks to get into the club and then they have to buy two drinks. So at the end of the night, they've spent 80 bucks. You got five people spending 80 bucks. That bringer producer's just raking in the money. You have no business being on that stage because you're brand new. That's the only reason you're even falling for this bullshit. And so I did a few of those shows. I quickly ran out of friends. And I was like, I have no idea how to do stand up. And these open mics fucking suck. Because in New York City, it's basically, it's, it's all comics. That's it. And you don't have yeah. to stay. You go in, you do your time, you leave. Yeah. And, and yeah, and you sometimes go up to no one. Um, so what I started doing was barking for, I, I did a show. And this guy who was producing shows at a place called the Grizzly Pear, which, you know, I guess you would call my home base, if you will, for like, that's where I've, I've developed generally most of my material. And um, he was producing shows there and he asked me if I was interested in coming down and maybe barking for him, which is basically like, if you've been to New York, it's like the people standing out on the streets going, stand-up comedy, comedy, anybody, comedy, and I took the comedy show tonight, you know, convincing people who have no interest in going to a comedy show to go to a comedy show. And so that's really how I ended up uh, starting because I figured it's better to bark for two hours outside and go up to the four people left at the show than do open mics and go up to comics who aren't taking you seriously and just acting like fucking assholes. So right. that's what I did. Yeah. One of the questions I want to ask you is like, how did you sort of progress in the New York scene? Like, how did you go from like open spot, like open mic, open spot, to sort of semi-pro pro comedian? Well, I mean, I sort of I jump, I, I basically jumped the open mic scene because I tried it. I, I literally tried it for like a month or two, and I was like this sucks and also i just didn't feel it felt like when i i specifically remember the first couple mics i went to and i felt like there were enough people sort of talking to me like you know because they've been doing comedy longer than me than that at that point right i've been doing it a couple months but you know it felt like, oh, I didn't really stand a chance of being taken seriously or whatever. And I get it. There's people who start comedy and then quit, you know, three months later. Or they're like weekenders. They're like, oh, I do comedy. And they don't really do comedy. And that's fine. Live your truth, whatever. But like, you know, I was, I, for me, I was like, no, I'm genuinely trying to understand if this is something. Because like, after my first time on stage, I was like, oh, this is for me. Like, I just, like, knew. I was, like, this is what I should be doing. Like, and, and not that I was, like, very good or anything. I, actually, watching that whole set is absolutely hilarious. I wasn't bad, but, like, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah, it would just, I just struggled to, like, have, like, you know, guys who are, like, seven years younger than me look at me like I'm a fucking idiot. And I was, like, fuck this. So I did, I barked for people for, I would say, I think eight months solid. Like, I barked for... Um, at pretty much as many shows as I could, which basically means I, you know, I stood out there for a few hours. I barked for different producers. And, you know, uh, during this time, like the scene changed, like even like who was running what club and blah, blah, blah. But like basically one day, I, 
I started to feel like when I saw the people the producers were booking, like the comics they were booking, and I'm seeing, you know, what they would do, and then I would go up, I was like, okay, I'm just as funny as these people they're booking, so I'm done barking. I just was like, I'm done. Like, I'm going to just get booked on merit now, because, um, and I also ran my own shows, not that they were very good or anything, but like, I, I was like, you know, I just was tired of seeing comics that I was like, I'm as funny as you go. Oh, thank you so much for, for barking today. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I know they mean to be nice, but it, for me personally, I felt like it was patronizing. I know they didn't mean for it to be, but I was just, I was just like, yeah, I'm standing out here in like zero degree weather while you like breeze in and bomb for eight minutes and walk into the people that I've struggled to get in. And now I'm going to go up to three and a half people who are intoxicated. Thank you. You know what I mean? I was like, fuck this. So when I decided, it's kind of like at a point you got to know your worth, you know? And that doesn't mean, you know, a, a comic once told me, and I've said this to people, um, anybody who said to me since then, like, you know, why am I not here? Why am I not there? Whatever. You, you can never get in at a club or somewhere too late, you know, but you can get in too early. So it was sort of like, um, you know, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with being like, I knew I was ready to be done barking. That doesn't mean I'm ready to like go do 15 minutes at Gotham Comedy Club, but it does yeah. mean I'm ready to not be, you know, basically sucking dick for my spots. Not literally, but you know what I mean? Yeah, so, so I moved, I, I just decided I, I'm not gonna bark anymore. And I, then I, I did get booked and I had a couple shows that I would run and you know, I worked, I did something on my shows that I've noticed is a bit different. Maybe people are doing more of it now. Um, and I'm sure people were doing it in the past, but basically I used my shows to run actual time. Rather than booking like 45 comedians on the lineup, I would book, uh, you know, a few comics and then do anywhere between like minimum 10 minutes, but anywhere between 10 and 30, you know, because I thought to myself, I want to be ready to headline one day. I don't want to be standing here like I've got eight usable minutes and you need me for an hour. So that means for 52 minutes, mm. I'm just going to shake and cry on stage, you know? So that was just basically how that worked. I mean, I just, I just decided I'm going to create my own spaces to work on my material because nobody's going to give you fucking 15 minutes, 30 minutes in New York City ever. You're going to get anywhere between five and eight, maybe 10 minutes if the show is, is decent. So very rarely 15. And basically I was doing that. And then I met an Australian comic who was in New York. I decided to, I'm a nice person. I tried my best to help him out as much as possible. He realized very quickly, even though that he, he's funny, that New York is an absolute shithole for doing standup, even if you're funny. But yeah. because I had helped him, he was like, are you interested in doing the fringe? And I was like, what is the fringe? I had no idea what it was. And he was like, I think, you could be well received there. I'll kind of help you put together your application since you helped me, you know, while I was in New York. And I was like, cool, all right, sure, let's give it a shot. I went to the fringe. I was well received at the fringe. And then I started thinking, why the fuck am I sitting here in New York? Because you've got so many talented comedians who are basically working for free or um, kissing ass to bookers who, you know, 
don't give a shit about him really for five minutes on the late night show for two years, you know, doing checks for like two years. Like it takes you so long to move up unless, you know, the booker really likes you or you're on brand with what the club wants or this or that and the other. And I was just sort of like thinking, what am I doing here? I just did really well in Scotland. So maybe I belong somewhere else, you know, like not that I wasn't doing well in New York. And I think if I'd stayed there, I would have continued my slow, sort of climb somewhere, you know? Um, I was hosting at major clubs, like, you know, like, it, so it's not like things were bad, but it, I saw that things could be better from my path. And okay. that's kind of why I ended up deciding to come to London for the first time ever in January of 2020 and just see what would happen. And, yeah, turns out that was a good choice career-wise. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be like you, you. I mean, from what I've seen, you, you've done a lot of the big clubs in the UK, haven't you? Like Top Secret, yeah, um, like, like up the creek stuff like that, haven't you? So. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I Top Secret. I have to say, is basically it's my favorite club ever. Uh, I guess you know, second to none. I you know. I like Gotham in New York too. They were always very nice to me. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I have been very, I've been first of all, very surprised at how nice clubs are to comics here. Um, it, it's, it's astonishing to me, just coming out of what I came out of. It's absolutely astonishing to me. And um, yeah, they, they have been really kind to me. I'm trying to like put this correctly because it's like, I also, I, I had said to, you know, the booker there, like, oh, thank, cause he asked me to fill in. And I was like, you know, thanks for thinking of me. And he was like, you, you're good. And that's why I think of you. So thank yourself, you know, or whatever. And I was like, that is really one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. And it, I guess it's, you know, I have to, yeah. I mean, I, I am doing a thing, you know, so. I sometimes don't celebrate the fact that I, I have like tried, you know, I did work to get here, you know, I, so like, yeah, I, I could be better, we can all always be better at what we do. And, and this year obviously has made it hard to get better, but um, it's just nice to be, to have gone somewhere where I'm wanted. Whereas in New York, uh, you know, I could get up and, and, and every night, multiple times a night and do the thing, you know, but I was told no a lot by major clubs based on the material I did um, because it didn't fit what they saw their audience being or they thought it was too shocking or this or that and the other. So then to be here in London working a club like Top Secret and then being like, we want what you do is, I, I guess it's all I could have ever wanted, you know, like, because I can't, I haven't been able to change to fit a, a mold that somebody else has for me like in my own country you know um yeah so yeah. yeah so one of the it's funny you say that because i interviewed another comedian on the new york circuit you probably know her uh, do you know sharon simon i do know sharon i don't know her very well but i know her that's so funny the last time i saw sharon i don't think it was last year but i think it was the year before at the broadway comedy club christmas party why do I remember that? I have no idea. 
Um, but yeah, like I, I know Sharon. Yeah, she. When I was speaking to her, she says like to progress on the New York circuit, it's, it's basically, it's a very you have to be able to give something. It's you got to do. It's more than just comedy. Like you've got to, like she used to drive comedians to gigs. Um, oh yeah. yeah. She, like you've got to put on your own show for a producer stuff like that. Um, whilst in I mean, London, perhaps it's not as much. It's not as shark sharky as perhaps new york new york is very much capitalist and like yeah yeah i mean well yeah like you know so uh, a much debated i guess method of, of getting booked in new york is a thing called spot trading and um i don't know if you're familiar with james mattern but he he is a staple in the new york comedy scene he is uh basically he wrote um sort of what, how he hosts shows, he, he's an he's a incredible host. He's who I, I basically watched him and was like, I'm gonna host like James Manor hosts because he does, he doesn't, he sets up a show perfectly. And I mean, this is a little known fact about me. Like I was booked primarily as a, as a MC in New York, which is so funny because now I'm over here working a major club, running my material, you know, which is like, in New York City, the only way I would work that club is if I was hosting. So it's very funny because in New York, the host, here they hold hosts in very high regard. And so you work your way into hosting, but in New York, you start as a host and then you work your way into doing 15. Oh. So it's reversed. So it's very funny because I've said to people, I'm like, do you need an MC? I'm like, so that is that was my bread and butter is being an MC. And now I haven't MC'd and I don't even know how long. Um, before the lock, last lockdown happened, I was supposed to have, I was supposed to MC Thursdays at Fulham Comedy Club. He was like, yeah, let's do it. And I was like, I cannot wait for people to see that I know how to do, I, I can MC because I can, I used to be able to MC in circles because I basically, in circles, that doesn't even make sense. But like, it, it was, it was what I was booked to do. And it was because I watched James Mattern and I learned how to do what he does in my own way. And he has a great uh, podcast called The Commissioner of Comedy. I don't listen to podcasts, but I do listen to the cl clips he posts. And I, I just don't listen to podcasts because for whatever reason, I just can't. I haven't found one I connect with. But I listen to one, the clips he posts because he is such an insightful person. He's from Las Vegas originally as well. So we relate on the Nevada level. But um, he is so insightful and intelligent, and he was going to be a rock and roll critic before he became a comedian. Um, he just is a really, you know, if, if you're a fan of comedy and you want to hear like somebody who has been around and has done it all, I would listen to James Madden's podca podcast. But he put, posted a clip about spot trading, and I know he is like, it's deplorable and this and that. And I think it is because, you know, basically these producers who are also comedians would have these shows and then they trade spots. They're like, oh, I'll put you on this Friday and Saturday. You give me Friday and Saturday on your show in two weeks and whatever. And then you're essentially booking a show that isn't for the audience. But at the same time, everybody's trying to get theirs and move up. So I kind of get it. For me, the way I would do it because when I had my own show, I also wanted to be booked on other people's shows. So people would hit me up for spots and then you're kind of like, okay, well, do you have a show? Because I would also like to do a spot. And then I would try to at least make the lineup 
as much as I could an enjoyable lineup for the audience. We don't have like 16 white guys, then maybe a, a, a woman, and then like a, a, one Asian and a black guy, and now it's, that's the show. You know, I, I tried to make it like, do you get to hear different styles of comedy? Like as much as I could, because for me, even though I wasn't trying to run some like hot show that got written up in the, the you know, timeout, I did want audience to enjoy themselves. And I do think in New York, producers who are also comics could give two fucking shits, period. They're like, I'm gonna book as many people as I need to book to get as many spots as I'm gonna get on their shows. Who cares mm. if the show is four and a half hours long? Who mm. cares if the audience never comes mm. back? They don't care. And, and they don't think about that part. And I do think if you're going to be producing, that's a huge part of it because, you know, the audience kind of leaves and they're like, I saw 18 comedians. I mean, I've hosted shows where I, there were 18 comics. I'm not even kidding. And I, and I put up 18 comics in like two hours, which is insane. It exhausts the audience. You, they don't even know what yeah. you're fucking seeing. And then I have to go up 18 fucking times and be like, and now come into the state, you know? And you're like, you, you, you run out of even ways to bring up people in an interesting way. Um, and, and yeah, I, I do think, so yeah, it's like, it's kind of like, what do you have that I can have and blah, blah, blah. And it's not as merit-based and it is what it is. But in some ways, you know, it does thicken your skin and you're kind of ready for a lot more. But in other ways, it also gives very unfunny people prime stage time because they run some show in the middle of New Jersey that's a hot show. Does, does that make sense? It, yeah. It's And it's just, it's kind of weird, but it is what it is. Um, and that's why, you know, I always sort of recommend if you can start your own thing, you don't need to even tell anybody about it. Like I, I ran three weekly shows for a while and I, I'd say I advertised one of them. And the other two, it was like, I would book a barker, you know, somebody that barked my audience in. I would book a host if I didn't want to host it myself. I put one of my friends on who was funny, who maybe needed time. They're like, I got this thing, whatever. Maybe one other small, you know, short spot. And then I'd run 30 minutes. And if the audience was hating me by 15, like visibly, they were just like, we hate you. I'm cutting it off at 20. You know, I'm not going to make them suffer. You know, you, you always want to try to turn it around, but you have to read the fucking room. And it's like, if you, if you haven't gotten them by 15, they're just, they're not into you, you know, or you're having an off night or whatever, and you shouldn't force anybody to sit through something. And I do think, I do think like New York comics sometimes lose, not, not just New York. I mean, all comics probably, but maybe especially New York in a, in a competitive market like that, but lose sight of sometimes anything outside of themselves and comedy is a very self-indulgent selfish thing if you really think about it so that yeah. makes sense so you can't fault them for it but um it would be it'd be interesting to see if you know we could all look outside of ourselves a little bit more i think yeah i think that's <laughs> yeah i think one of the things you said there was quite interesting because even though you're doing the show for like progression or that, if the show is terrible and there's no audience, then there's not really much of a use for it being there. It's much easier for the comedians to develop their stuff if there's a good audience there. Well, see, I will, I will, coming out of New York, like I, the majority of the shows I did were for 20 people or less. 
If you have 20 people, you got a good show on your hands. I'm not kidding. You know, even clubs like in New York City or during the weeknight are struggling to get audience. Weekend, sure, you might have it packed. Or if you're a headliner club and you got a famous headliner, packed, fine. But like, just for a regular showcase for, you know, you and me on a fucking Tuesday at 10 o'clock, you might struggle to get audience. You're gonna be happy if 20 people are there. And that's gonna be who you're gonna work for, you know? Um, so I'll say that I, my, one of the shows I ran for the majority of my time in New York, first it was on Tuesday at midnight, okay? Then I got moved to Thursday, better night to do a midnight show. It ran from midnight to 1.30 in the morning, okay? That was my show. I put everybody up first and then I was like, I'm running 20 or 30 at the end <laughs> to people who are fucking hammered and maybe don't even want to be here at starting at 1 a.m. I'm going to run 30 minutes. And that was sort of the challenge then because it was like, can I make these people who maybe never even wanted to walk in here, who are drunk, who aren't paying attention, who've already seen what they wanted to see, maybe they're rowdy, maybe they're throwing shit. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a video I put on my Instagram of like what looks like this fight breaking out between, I think they were Jewish and then some other people. It's absolutely insane. While I'm on stage, my, my tape was going and it was the craziest thing ever. But, but I'm like, if I can make, I can get something out of this. And I many times did, you know, like with my material, like I'm like, oh, I, in that 30 minute set, I worked on these seven different things. I switched this, I tried this, whatever. And even though it was to four people, if, three of the four people laughed, then I'm like, okay, that is how I'm gonna do that from now on. Does that make sense? Yeah. You, you, you don't need a, a packed room to figure out what's funny if you're, if you're really looking at the people you're working with and connecting with them with what you're doing. And that's like just my opinion. I mean, I had to work so many shit rooms that it's like, I was like, everything is an opportunity, no matter what. Even the worst room, and I've had some of my best sets in what seemed like the worst rooms, you know, like where I'm like, if I could do it like that in front of an audience that actually wants to be there, has paid to get in and is excited to see comedy, then I'm going to, you know, rip, I'm going to destroy, that's going to be a killer set. And I think that's why when I did go to Edinburgh and, and tried my shit out and was sort of dealing with people who were showing up because they wanted to, I was surprised, I mean, yeah, I definitely bombed my hour a couple times, you know, but I was surprised. I was like, I, it was for the first time I was sort of like, oh, I can actually do this. Like, I know how to do this. Like, but it's hard to gauge when you're really going up to four or five people, six people, 20 people, you know, standardly. And now I'm working a club like Top Secret really regularly, you know? I mean, I was working clubs in New York, don't get me wrong, but like, not as regularly, you know, like you're kind of getting a spot every month, two months, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a lot. So the fact that, you yeah. know, I'm now doing that in a club like Top Secret, I mean, I'll say the Corona audiences are absolutely out of control. Like, because you got all these kids who essentially want to get hammered before the cutoff at 10 PM. So they're not even wanting to be watching comedy. They want to be at a bar. And, you know, and like basically dry humping each other through their clothes at a fucking bar, not sitting watching comedy. But with that said, generally speaking, Top Secret is an incredible club. 
most of the time people are going there to see comedy and not just get wasted before 10 p.m., you know, before Daddy Boris puts the kibosh on the booze consumption, you know? <laughs> but um, working really difficult rooms like that, I think makes a room like Top Secret absolutely easy, which is insane, you know? So I, I recommend the struggle is what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah, it's quite a funny thing because, I mean, it is good for the struggle, but some people say that with some sort of open mic shows and some shows, they do more harm than good because they're so hard. I, I would say, like, if you get in a uh, rut, like a routine of only doing the same type of shitty show, like, yeah, you're going to um, adapt to doing your material like that like um and you you are going to need to progress in order to be in front of a real audience so you know what your timing really is like if you have like open mic timing let's say that's the time your your timing is off because you're waiting for laughs that never come so you just speed up your jokes but then when you're in an actual room with an actual audience, you might railroad your jokes because your timing is open mic timing for people who were never listening and you were just trying to get your jokes out. So it's like, you do need to do, I always say you need to do a variety as much as you can. Like yeah. I would do any show. I have done shows in hostels to people who don't speak English. I did shows, I did all, all of the, the black rooms that would have me in Harlem, Ooh. in Bed-Stuy. I, those were some of my favorite, to be honest, because there, you know, I look like how I look, right? And I can feel the energy of, you know, the like I there's this place called Mocha Lounge in Harlem, right? Which is a notorious, uh, a notoriously difficult room. Because if they don't like you, they'll fucking shake their keys at you, they'll boo, they'll start to do whatever, you know, to basically get like immediately if they are not into what you're doing. And it's funny because I think, you know, when they see like a white girl, they're like, oh, what's this bullshit? You know, cause I kind of look like I'm gonna say some dumb shit, you know? But then I get up there and I'm starting, I'm talking about crystal men and putting garlic in my pussy to treat get a yeast infection. And then suddenly they're like, this shit is fucking crazy. This bitch is crazy. And then it's an energy unlike any other. You know, when you when you make a room of black people laugh, it's better than you know almost any other room, frankly. Yeah. You know, because especially when they're expecting you to be like you know whack, pretty much. Um, so it's like doing. I I say do as much. I, I just say yes to everything. That that's pretty much Ooh. because it teaches it or has taught me how to deal with any type of situation um, that comes my way. And I think that's a skill in itself. I mean, you know, I had a woman essentially get wheeled out on a stretcher at the beginning of my set one time. And it was like, because she had like a heart attack. It was, um, it was, it was a veterans of foreign wars, uh, like event in, in like a fucking, you know, dance hall. So, and uh, yeah, this lady had a heart attack. This old lady, it was like the grandma of the lady who put it on. And I guess they had called the ambulance when the comic before me was up. And then they were put, bringing the stretcher in as this host who was on stage, totally toned up to the situation. He calls my name and brings me up. And they're like strapping this grandma to the stretcher. And I'm like holding the mic and I'm like, 
you know what, I think I'm gonna just wait a minute. And I just like put it in the stand and walked away. Cause I'm like, no, I can't like start my bit. There's a grandma getting wheeled into a fucking ambulance right now. Um, so yeah, it, I just think, I really try to think of everything as an opportunity. And I don't know if that's just cause of like stuff I've been through in my life prior to uh, moving to New York, like as a teenager and whatever, you know, but I really think everything can be an opportunity, but at the same time in that token, you have to know your worth, like kind of going back to that, like at a point when you're like, I am not doing, like I, I like at a point I was like, I'm not hosting your show for free anymore in New York. I will only host your show for money. So I basically stopped taking unpaid host spots because even though I was like, I could get something out of the spot material wise, I'm good enough to be paid only. Like I, I will only host for money, you know? Um, so, you know, it, it's a balance and, and like kind of going back to what you said at the beginning, everybody's different, you know, and everybody's kind of journey is different and how you look at it and what you're going to do, you know? You've thrown in some interesting points there. And one of the things that I do want to ask you about, I mean, you'll see that the comedy is definitely different in New York as opposed to London. Because in London, yeah. you've got a lot of more, and you've probably seen a lot more character act and a lot more weirder acts that do yeah. strange things. I yeah. mean, that works very well. But when I went to New York, I mean, the stand-up may have been a slightly better, but there wasn't as much variety. Right. I 100% I, I agree with you um, completely. I think, I think a really uh, well-crafted character is amazing. And um, I will say, I'm gonna, you know, I love shouting out the, the, the people that I admire. It, it brings me joy. Um, and there is a comic in New York named Andrew Castertano, and he does something, it, it's who he is though, I think. And he does something unlike anyone else. I think he'd smash it up over here. He should definitely do it if he could, can. Um, and he is a staple in, in New York for doing what he does. And, you know, he is somebody who started in the open mic scene and is, you know, I think slowly getting his way doing what he does. But I remember seeing him on a show and saying to him, you know, it, it seemed like, not that I offered him unsolicited advice or anything, but I think I actually might have, because we were friendly enough where I was like, do you mind if I say this? You know, because it was like you, rail, you ran over some of your laps because you, you went too fast probably because he, you know, was so used to doing mics. Who knows? I don't want to pretend like I know. He is, because I've started this by saying he is so funny and so different. And that is why I really like him and everybody likes him in New York because he is, he knows who he is up there. He knows what he does and he's doing it really well. And he's just going to evolve. And but that is like the only person I can think of in all of New York that does something weird like that. And I do think um, I think uh, my opinion of why I'm doing better over here than I was over there, again, not that I was doing bad over there, I was slowly getting somewhere, but it's like, yeah, I'm not like everybody else. Like, I remember I've been said, told by bookers, like, oh, maybe try to write something a little less shocking or this or that, and I'm like, so you mean like everybody else? Like, I don't, I, I'll try, but I don't really have that in me. You know, and what I ended up writing based on that critique from that booker was how I used to eat dog food as a kid. 
and then some <laughs> jokes about cocaine. And I'm like, well, it's New York. Everybody loves cocaine, right? You know, but like, so really it's just, I found the only voice I have is my own. And that is, in my opinion, to my benefit, although the journey has been longer and harder, not longer, that's actually totally incorrect. But it's, it, to me, I was like, my, I said to myself, my journey may be longer and more difficult if I'm going to be not like everyone else, not have the same timing or the same jokes or the same whatever, because even though they're all very polished and good and definitely have their own behaviors yeah. here and there that are unique to them, it's like, it is like that. Like, you know, my husband actually watches stand-up comedy and he likes it. I don't. I, I, not that I dislike it. I don't put it on. And I'm sort of like, I guess people ask me why. And I'm like, I don't know. If I was so busy taking in other people's art, I wouldn't have time to be creating or thinking about or experiencing my life so I can make my own. Um, but I think the week at the cellar like came up on our TV on YouTube and there was somebody I knew on there and he's very nice and he's very funny and whatever. But even Mark who like, you know, he was just sort of like, I don't know, this is, this guy could be the last guy. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like they, they have a very polished, they're, they're, they're great. They're smart. They're coming up with clever things, very polished. They deserve what they're getting because they worked hard to get it, whatever. But it's almost like America and New York doesn't like anything too different unless it's so diverse. Like it's somebody from a, another country who's been through all this shit. Then they like that, you know, it, it, it's like weird, you know, but they don't like weirdos. So one of the other questions I want to ask with, with both London and New York being so different is, and I have to ask this, so when I was there, there, there seems to be a massive infestation of rats in New York. I mean, there's a oh, few yeah. in, in, in here, but it's like, one of the funny things was, me and like one of my friends that I know over there, we were seeing something rustle in the bushes, and we think, I was thinking, you know, being from England, oh, that's a fox. But then I see like three or four rats jump out. Yeah, no, well, that's so funny, because uh, when I saw my first fox here, I was like, oh! you know i was like how wonderful you know so i love seeing them but yeah rats um new york's built on rats uh it's built on rat corpses in fact there's this great book about rats that i read i love rats i i oh. actually no yeah uh i forget this so i might as well just say it. but i have a i have rats tattooed between my legs i have a live rat kind of going in toward the back and then a rat skeleton coming out and so when i stand with my legs together it's like it shows like a half dead half alive rat and um a rats yeah i see you're you're grossed out i can tell you're grossed out but like rats are genuinely a reflection of how we live as humans and um they're you know they're so if you're grossed out by them, and I mean, you live in London, so there's less here, obviously, but it's like, for New Yorkers, it's like, that's, and they're, New Yorkers are grossed out by them, but it's like, they, they wouldn't be like that if we didn't behave the way we behave with our trash and our, our city and, and all of that. And there's a great book called Rats that actually um, explains how rats even got to America from Europe, I believe, on, on ships on ships when people were um, immigrating and, and shit like that. And um, 
you know, rats are incredible. Like they're, they're, they have a gestation period of 21 days. Their teeth are as strong as steel. They're picky with their food. They don't just eat at anything. Um, they will fuck you if you're alive or dead. That's for sure. They, they don't care if you're, if you're a dead rat, they'll, they'll fuck you anyway. But, um, you know, yeah, rats are everywhere. They can swim. They, they can. I, I fortunately never had one in my toilet, but they can swim up in your toilet. <laughs> well, I mean, it'd be quite, I think it would be a horrifying sight for you, dude, Catherine, even though you like him. If you're no, in the middle of business and then boom. Terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying. No, no. I, I, don't, I don't wish for it, but, uh, you know, yeah. But yeah, it's, it was it intrigued me because like everywhere I went in New York, there were rats, and like you talk about the underground in New York, you talk about this everywhere, and it was a bit unnerving, and it's like so casual. And then in in London, there was I, I remember going to King's Cross. It was early in the morning. I used to work in a coffee shop, and like there would be a piece of like a burger on the floor, and there was like ten different rats there and bloody mice. Boom. Vroom, 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 all surrounding it. It was like, my God. Yeah. That was, that was unnerving. Yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't totally miss them, but I do, you know, special place in my heart for the rest. Okay. I mean, I would like, you know, there is, there is in Vauxhall Comedy Club, one of the guys does bring a dog with, with him, Mooch. I mean. Oh, yeah. Be... I met his dog. Yeah. You could maybe bring get a pet rat calf and bring that on stage. It'd be a double act. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, why not? Why not? Just say, look, if anyone heckles, heckles, I can command this rat and it's going to take your stuff. So listen. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's been it's been an interesting chat. Thank you, Catherine. You told me a lot about. <laughs> Yeah, on that note, right? on the rat note. <laughs> on yeah. But I will say, um, no, I mean, New York and London, they're both fascinating cities. They both, like, there's so much to them. They've got such character to them. And it's, I mean, they're probably New York, maybe LA and London might be the best places to do comedy in the world. Well, you know, I, yeah, I, I agree, but you know, I, I agree prior to the pandemic, but I'm very lucky in the sense that I, so I left New York. I didn't leave New York by choice, but I, I, I came here in January, um, January through February. I was in New York. I can tell you the last day I was in New York, I believe was February 28th. I was there for less than 24 hours to pack for Australia, okay? And that was the last time I saw my apartment, which I no longer have, or any of my stuff, which I no longer have. Um, my old roommate and New York. And the pandemic, obviously, on February 28th had not hit yet. And everything was normal. I did, I flew there for less than 24 hours. I did my show at Beauty Bar that my roommate, who was a comic, he was running. Um, and so I was there less than 24 hours and I was like, I have to do a show. I did my show. I had a slice of pizza. I rode the subway. I packed my shit. I slept on my couch. You know, it was this whole thing. And, and, and never in my life did I think I would not return. Um, 
So it's been very weird. But in some ways, I never, ha I, I haven't had to see it the way it is now, which is my understanding based on both comics I've talked to, as well as comics I know who have left and moved and friends of mine who have left and moved. You know, um, even though they're doing these outdoor shows, New York is very good at this, uh, I will say this. They are really good at polishing a turd, right? <laughs> they have a photographer taking fucking photos at a show and then they do the shout outs being like, what another killer lineup and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and, and it generates this interest, right? You're like, oh my mm -hmm. God, that looks incredible. But like any of those that I've done, I'm like, I know exactly <laughs> what that was, you know? And sometimes they're great, but like, you know, they know how to generate this interest, right? Because even myself being, when, you know, I was in Australia and I'm here, I'm like, oh, these outdoor shows, do, 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 like I'm missing out, you know? But like anyone I've actually, like the people that are, the comics that are friends of mine that have actually kept in touch with me, you know, they're like, look, you know, you know what it is. It, it, they're, they're screaming in a park with no microphone. We're all just trying, you know, New York has the perseverance and I'll always give it that. And, and I will never fault anybody for trying. Like you gotta do, you gotta do what you gotta do and, and keep it going, right? But like, you know, they're like, it's not good. They're like, it doesn't feel good people aren't happy. New York isn't the way it was. It's like, it's the same, but it's not, you know, and it will survive because it's fucking New York, you know, but it's like, it, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm glad I can remember it the way I've known it, you know, um, and I don't have to see it this way, and even though it'll be fine, and it is fine, you know, it's not like it's dead forever, but it does seem to be that all of the major comics. I've, I've learned this from friends of mine as uh, who are comics, but also friends of mine who are not comics who listen to podcasts. And they're like, yeah, like all the pros have either moved to New Jersey or Texas or the Carolinas or Florida. You know, I guess Joe Rogan, somebody who I have zero interest in, but somehow know this fact, he's moved from LA to Texas um, because, you know, there's no real uh you know normalcy in sight for these cities that were the hubs of comedy and the meccas of comedy and but you know these other places which are like you know i don't know what you call them the red states or whatever they're they don't give a fuck so they're not the liberal states so they're wide open you know corona's amok i mean i'm not gonna pretend like i know what to do about that but so that's where people are going. They're like, we want to be open. We want to do comedy. So we're going to go to Texas now. So suddenly, I don't know, is there going to be this shift where it's like, at least for the foreseeable future, the places to be to do comedy are going to be Texas, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, I mean, do you, Ohio, you know, like I guess Dave Chappelle's in Ohio, my friend who, you know, was there for my, he hosted the first show I ever did and is now a very good friend of mine. And he was a regular at Gotham and he's been nothing but supportive of my career and who I am the whole time. He's back in Ohio. He's like, I went back to Ohio. And I'm like, that's crazy. I mean, it's not crazy. It's like, you gotta do what you gotta do. But people that I know who were like there in New York for comedy are like, this is not coming back soon enough, anytime soon. So I'm going back to where I came from or to this new place to do it, you know? And so I guess it will be interesting to see if there's going to be this cultural shift in what is the place to be, where is the actual mm. Mecca for comedy now? Whereas here in the UK, you know, 
Um, I, it seems like everybody's still like, yeah, it's London, you know, or like maybe Liverpool and we're all just shut down and we're going to be shut down until we open, you know, and I know people, normal people have like exited London. I mean, that's how I got such a good deal on the apartment I moved into, but it seems like in terms of comics, it's kind of like, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're staying where we're staying and we're just going to wait until this opens up again. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting point, but one thing that I I have thought of, but like with LA and New York, I mean, well, especially with LA, I mean, if people want to be actors and all that, and the, I mean, they're still going to be in LA, aren't they? So, I mean, I think in some respects, comedy will have, will still have some semblance in there. Well, yeah, I mean, that's if, I, I guess I'll put it this way, that's if you're in LA and you're like, I'm an actor and comedian and model, which like, I, you know, that's a tale, that's a rivalry as all this time. Like whenever LA comics would come to New York, we'd be like, oh great, you know, <laughs> like it's because, you know, a lot of New York comics are, you know, we're like, we're, we want to do comedy or write, you know, or write for a show or SNL or this or that, whereas like, you know, LA, you're like, oh, you want to, you're a fucking model and an actor and a comedian and it's obvious because you're not funny you know like, <laughs> that's not to say no look there's some funny la comics of course you know whatever and I, I, a, a friend of mine did the reverse he came up in new york and then was like i'm going to la to see what i can do there now you know and every, again everybody's got their own journey whatever and you can't make any sweeping generalizations about anybody but um yeah, I think, you know, obviously, I can't speak to the film industry, you know, if you want to be an actor, where you're going to go. But in terms of people who seem to be like, I'm doing stand up, or producing a podcast, which I can do from anywhere, I'm going to go to where stand up is. Like I did just record with someone, um, Ray DeVito, the other day, it, I, it was like his podcast. Um, and Mark DeMeo was on it. And Mark DeMeo was like born and raised in Queens. He is like in the Bronx now. Ray was living in Queens when I left. Ray went back to Ohio. Ray's like, I can get up four times a week. So like, well, how many times a week is anybody getting up in New York right now? I guess mm. if you're willing to go outside in December in the snow, <laughs> to perform to whoever will show up, you know, I, I did see a friend of mine go, first show of 2021, but then sometimes you're like, yo, I mean, it's winter, the pandemic is raging, I mean, maybe we should take a break until spring, but I don't know, if I was there, would I be trying to get up to? Who knows? But obviously here in the UK, we can't do shit, so now that's just what we're doing, it's nothing. So, it's weird, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, I, eventually everything will turn to some type of normal at some point you have to imagine hopefully <laughs> i mean i don't know well i think we'll appreciate it a lot more and it may oh, yeah. like for whatever comedy clubs that survive they'll rake it in and a lot of comedians have given up stand-up as well some of them are very funny that i'm shocked that have given up but the wrong ones I, yes opinion, yes a lot of the wrong ones have stopped um and hopefully when things are normal i I think they'll see it, you know, get the itch and be like, you know, but, and that's not all of them. Some of them should definitely stay quick, you know, but. <laughs> that's true. But that's, that's the way it is. And yeah, it's been a fascinating talk. It's, it's, it's really, it's been, been a lot of fun looking into the New York scene and like seeing your perspective of how they're different. And 
sort of one of the questions that I want to ask at the end of the podcast, I ask you like, what is a quote you like to live the rest of your life by? Um, what advice would you give to your younger self? And who is your hero? Oh man. Oh God. Okay. You know, it's funny that you ask about that quote. Um, Cause like, I definitely, I was asked that on another podcast and I think it was like, fuck it. But I, and then I saw it and I was like, Oh, I should have said this other thing. And, and then if I'm ever asked that, I'll say it. And I have no idea what it is now, but you know, um, okay. I got, I got one. You do you know the artist Robert Crumb? No, but I'm, I'll have a look at him, Robert Crumb. Yeah, well, so he, he, he was, uh, in the 60s, he drew a lot of the stuff for like the psychedelic movement, although he himself didn't use a lot of psychedelics. He's also like done a folk band, and he basically would draw like overweight, large-breasted women, um, <laughs> among other things. And, and there's a great documentary about him called Crumb, and he had two brothers, and one... Um, was, I guess is in the Guinness Book of World Records for uh, swallowing and shitting out and re-swallowing over and over again a piece of string. Um, yeah, weird. And uh, then he had another brother named Charles who's in the documentary. And Charles has since committed suicide. But there's a great quote that, um, oh God, I hope this got saved. And I just remembered that this, I had a shirt in New York, whatever. Um, there's this great quote by Charles Crumb. I think his name's Charles. And it was and it's something to the effect of like, how perfectly goddamn delightful it all must be to be sure. Something like that. And like, you know, I guess the idea that if you are so certain about everything, you know, it's like, it's like another way of saying ignorance is bliss, maybe, you know? Um, no, that's, but you know, here, I, I would just say, I've said this before and I'll say it again, sin bravely. That's what I would say. Sin bravely is a good one, I, I think, for how you live, how, how I live, you know? Um, I, yeah, I got a great story about that, but that's for another time. <laughs> And like, so what is, what advice would you give to younger self? And like, who, who's, who's your hero in life? Who, ins who inspires you? Okay. Uh, to be honest, I don't think I would give much more advice to my younger self unless my younger self is um, packing for Australia back in March. I, <laughs> that, I, I would say pack winter clothes do not pack this ugly bullshit that you packed. I packed, the things I packed, I packed a carry-on suitcase to go to Australia, okay? So that, I had 15 years worth of shit in my apartment. I had a VHS collection, okay? So like, I had real clothes. I packed the shit that you pack that you never wear, where you're like, ooh, I should give this a test run. It's been sitting in my closet. It's hideous. I'll take it to Australia and give it a go, right? No. If I could do anything differently, I would have packed stuff I actually like to wear because I've since burned everything else that I, I brought, I swear to God, because it was hideous and also not for winter. So I would have, so I would have told my younger self to pack an actual adult size suitcase filled with things I actually want to wear for the next nine months, okay, because that's all I would have. And I would have, I swear to God, just done organize my apartment differently 
so it could be disassembled in a less chaotic way because I basically had to have a friend of mine go to my apartment, collect all of the shit that I wanted to keep via video chat for over two hours. And then I would see things in photos from my other friend who was selling things to people for me, like going like, no, I want that. That's super sentimental. You know what I mean? Like if I had my apartment organized at all any differently, I wouldn't be in this chaotic headspace of wondering what the things I care about, what has been thrown away, what I have lost. I've had to go through this. I, I probably should do one of those meditations you talked about, right? Because it brings me a lot of uh, mental and emotional turmoil to think about the things of mine that I know had to end up in the trash on the final day um, of my apartment in New York, which was, you know, the, the 23rd of December. Um, and, and having to let go of, of that and realizing that I had no control over that or getting to save my stuff. So advice to my younger self would be like, pack your shit better, uh, organize your shit better so you can, uh, so in the events that there's a global pandemic and you can never return to your apartment in New York City, you are more organized to facilitate whatever comes with that. Okay, so that's that. And then I, my hero, I mean, I don't, you know, uh, my, I, my mom. I mean, I guess it's stupid. I, everybody fucking says that. But like, you know, my mom and I are very different people. We're also very similar. And without my mom being like who she is, I wouldn't have gotten to be who I am. And at the end of the day, I do like myself. And I feel pretty proud of like the type of person I am and hopefully who I can be and continue to grow to be. And I guess that has to do with my mom. You know, I, I, I wouldn't attribute that to many other people, uh, I think. So, yeah. You're, you're content in life. I am not content. Do I, oh, okay, do I okay. seem content to you? Do I seem? <laughs> okay. Sorry, I, in fact, yeah. I, I would actually think I'm never happy. That is one, you know, my husband and I have gotten to know each other a lot throughout all of this because I don't know if you know that story, but, you know, we met at the Fringe and we decided to get married when we were in London and we were gonna do this great wedding at the Fringe. We were basically gonna do a surprise wedding for all the comedians um, using the room my show was gonna be in. It was gonna be a, a really funny, it was gonna be a real wedding that also seemed like a prank. And we were gonna film it and it was gonna be awesome. But, so you know, obviously we've now been through a lot together, which fortunately has solidified we made the right choice of being together because, you know, we haven't murdered each other or ended up splitting up. So that's nice. And um, he and I are very different. And he, even though I think he seems a little more brooding and whatever, he has a tendency to be better at being grateful for things not being worse than they are, even in the middle of a shitstorm. Whereas I only can see that in retrospect. And I have a tendency to be dissatisfied with the way things are and always kind of trying to press for more and work for more or whatever. So uh, yeah, no, I'm actually never, uh, I'm never happy. I'm never satisfied. I probably should celebrate wins and success more and be happy and grateful more. And maybe I should work on that in 2020. But, so I meant, so you're, you're content with yourself. You're happy with you. Yeah, you know, I mean, yes and no, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's always opportunity for growth. I could. I think about like, <clears throat> look, I like the type of person I am. Yeah, 
I, I, I like I like who I am. I'm open to the world and things and people and different ideas, even if I don't agree with them and, and whatever. And I, I tend to be, I'm nice. I, I, like, I like being nice. It doesn't mean I like anybody, but I like being nice to people. The world is, is shit, you know, generally. Um, and I like the life I've led. You know, if I died tomorrow, I, I would be like, well, I, I, I did a lot. You know, I did a lot in my life, I think more than most people already, you know, and I like that about myself. So I hope to just keep doing that, you know, um, and, you know, it's different than my mom is. But again, without the support of somebody who loves you for you and lets you be who you are, even though you're not like them, you know, I could have been stifled in that, you know, and there's so many people who I think do get stifled by their parents and end up doing things they don't want to do and not being who they want to be. And if my mom hadn't let me go my own way, you know, I could have ended up, who knows what the fuck I would be doing right now, but I'm pretty sure I would not be happy because I'm not happy now. And I'm as close to doing what I want to do as, as I've ever been. So, yeah. But yeah, you, things could be better, but you're, you're, you're happy. Things could be better and you can learn be better. And you like, like that about yourself but at the moment you're okay with it it's not at the point where you're like Ugh. you're at a point where yeah. it's, it's it's in between it's okay um I yeah yeah i mean we gotta be okay with what's happening right now i think you know my first round of lockdown in australia i mean i think back to the person i was then that's sort of the thing here and i think you said it at the beginning about mental health and people it's weird because so much has happened and yet so little has happened in 2020, right? It's like this weird, like we did nothing and yet so much at the same time. And we all have changed, but it's almost like you feel like you haven't because you didn't get to do all the things you wanted to do last year, not you, but anybody, but we've all been affected. And, uh, and, and even the tools we used to have to like deal with maybe a type of trauma like coronavirus. They didn't work for coronavirus. So I don't know, I think we're all different. Than, I'm certainly not the same person as I was a year ago, but I like that I've kind of hung on to the core of who I am. And I'm hoping after, you know, we get let outside again and we can be outside again, you know, I'll see what this struggle plus that, you know, turns into. Hopefully a fucking, hopefully five usable minutes, I swear to God. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I, I think definitely from what you said. <laughs> um, so one thing I want to say as well, um, what would you like to plug in a podcast if you want to get in touch oh. with you? And... Yeah, okay, okay. I, uh, well, I do a podcast with Mark. Um, hilariously, when we started it, it was supposed to be uh, about us uh, just being in a new relationship, but living together in a foreign country. I had never been outside of America before August of 2019, ever. So I don't know if I mentioned that. Never outside of America before August 2019. And now I live in the UK. So whatever. Um, but yeah, it was supposed to be about us being in a relationship, a new relationship, and traveling around the world doing stand-up comedy. And obviously, uh, that came to a screeching halt immediately. Now I don't know what it's about, but we do certainly have fun doing it. And it's called This American Irish Life. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, a fun, it's, it's a fun podcast that we do. Um, I'll plug that. And then my Instagram, I guess, which is uh, you girl, you nasty. 
and it's spelled E W girl you nasty. It's a it's a definitely a, a, a handle that will attract attention. I like that. Yeah, I think it's accurate as well. Ooh. It's it's good. It's a little tagline. I think. I mean, I hope Edinburgh. I think Edinburgh will go ahead this year in a small capacity. But yeah, yeah. Let's see what happens. And I just want to say for people listening back home, make sure you follow Catherine. Um, and and give this podcast a five star review. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'll see you guys soon, Catherine. Best of luck with everything, and thank you very much for appearing on the podcast.